0: Why don't uh, I open us up in prayer first? Father God, I uh, thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity for us to think about you and to learn about you, Lord. I ask that you give me uh, clarity of mind and clear speech, um, and that uh, this would be helpful and edifying to your body. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... uh, let me start with a lot of preamble. So the preamble is, uh, there, this is like a really huge subject. Um, and when I uh, was asked to give a class on it, initially I was like, okay, I'll do one tight class about it, and then I realized that's not gonna work, I have to do more than one. And then the, lo- the longer I was reading and, and looking, uh, there's just no way. Uh, for me to put everything that I would like to say into a class, unless we want to go all year. Um, And so I had to focus on one specific thing. So I'll talk about what what the the goal of this class is uh, in a second. But first, uh, I'm Luke Batty. Um, I'm one of the deacons here at church. I'm also what uh, would be called a natural theologian back in the day, uh, and i will get into that um but this uh is a little controversial i don't know if you guys have noticed but uh there is sort of a, a discussion going on in uh the in christian circles and has been for a long time uh and so what i hope to do in talking about creationism intelligent design theistic evolution all these different topics uh is to provide a a framework for unity in the body. You know, I feel like a lot of times um, among Christians when we want to be having useful, um, helpful discussions about these topics, you know, sort of like Bilbo hanging out and smoking a pipe and talking to Gandalf, we want to be doing that, but a lot of times, it's, it's more like that, right? <laughs> we're we're kind of yelling at each other, and we're, we're just not c- connecting. And so um, that's what I want to do. I wanna, My goal here was to provide a couple tools to help us to understand each other all the different positions that are, are, are there. And, and more generally, talk about two sort of big-picture philosophical positions that carry a lot of weight in this discussion. Um, So with that, let me go into what we're doing today, which is introduction. Um, I know everybody loves introductory classes, but uh, I felt like there really wasn't any way for me to avoid it because... To understand a lot of the tension and a lot of the um, rancor in the debate, we have to really understand how we got where we are right now. So I wanted to give sort of a historical overview of, of the debate in Christianity, in science, and how science and faith sort of have been together and not together, and then we can go into this specific part of that debate, which is uh, intelligent design and theistic evolution. So... Uh I'm going to apologize ahead of time for this PowerPoint. Uh, it is probably the most boring PowerPoint I've ever made. <laughs> but I promise next week, um, it'll, it'll probably be as bad. So <laughs> let's be honest. Okay. So let's start with uh, the rise of the scientific method. Uh, now, believe it or not, the scientific method didn't actually pop out of the Enlightenment um, after those horrible dark ages. Uh, but in fact, actually, the, the beginnings of the scientific method were actually developed in medieval Christian universities. Um, and the, the way this developed is actually very interesting because if you go back to antiquity, uh, when thinking about the natural world, especially if we're talking about ancient Greeks, for instance, they would actually do propositional thinking, which meant they would think about first principles and then, using reason, apply those first principles to nature and say, this must be what's going on in nature. Um, Because their view of, of God and creator, the logos, is reason sort of imprinted on nature. And so you didn't have to go out and look at nature and you know, observe. Uh, You just had to think about it and be like, okay, that's what's going on. And you didn't um, have to worry about it. But with the rise of Christianity, we had the rise of a free creator, a creator that was personal, and that now he had a will. And because God had will, that meant he could have done otherwise. He chose to create things a specific way. And so the only way that we can know what's going on in nature uh, is to actually observe it. To go and look at it and say, this is what must be going on. So empiricism, the, uh, the view that we can look at nature and over testing and observation, we can learn something about the way that it works... Uh, develops from Christian theology of the the nature of God as a free person. Uh, And the other uh, component of this sort of development is that God is rational, and we are made in his image, which means that we can actually, we have reason to believe that we can go into nature and determine what's going on, that we can understand it. Uh, I mean, it seems obvious to us now, but... Uh, Before Christianity, there was no feeling that nature could be intelligible to human beings, right? So uh, with these two pillars, we have the will of God and we have uh, intelligibility. uh, We can now, as some of the the early um, natural theologians, which was what they called scientists back in the day, so... I'm I'm a scientist, if that wasn't clear from earlier on. Um, uh, These natural theologians sought to think God's thoughts after him. And by learning about how God created the world, to then glorify him and praise him for his amazing works, which is the impetus for a lot of the early scientific breakthroughs. Um, But over time, uh, this was formalized and... Uh, systematized institutionalized throughout the 17th and 19th century Um, earlier you know as the the uh, effort of science sort of progressed we go from sort of uh, medieval university professors sort of thinking about it it wasn't a huge it wasn't like it it exploded right but it started there and over time you had a growth of sort of independent scientists sort of doing their own thing like oh hey I was you know out in my uh, mansion and I was looking in the backyard and I was like, hey, what about these peas, you know? <laughs> so uh, that moved on and then it, over time, it became, there, there started to become philosophy of science where people were thinking about how we do science, what's best practices, what is the scientific method, how can we best uh, challenge hypotheses and bring up evidence, etc. Uh, and uh, in the second half of the nineteenth century, uh, science n- over time gets continuously narrowed and narrowed and narrowed down in its scope so in uh, oh hold on, I skipped the thing, uh, but at the end of the nineteenth century that 's when we have the the narrowing of science into uh, sort of the the epistemological method outside of the supernatural right so science now becomes this uh, this method to de- determine things outside of theology and philosophy, this is where we go out and we see what 's in nature um, and we don 't we try not to bring any philosophy or theology into it and This is actually uh, when this uh, this sort of assumption uh, and it 's informal it 's not actually ever been um, formally inserted into the scientific method but uh, methodological naturalism is now assumed, right? And what math- methodological naturalism is, is the assumption that everything that we look at in nature has a natural explanation, right? So we, we, do not, uh, we do not appeal to agents. We do not appeal to God. We just say, this must have happened because of this, and it's an endless sort of chain of causation, Um, And this is methodological naturalism. Now, at the same time, throughout this period uh, that science is becoming institutionalized, we also have the rise of a variety of uh, new sort of disciplines and new discoveries from these disciplines. So we have uh, advances in geology, uh, paleontology, biology. And uh, the interesting thing about these advances is that... uh, while starting from a Christian foundation of understanding how we can understand nature, uh, we started to discover things about nature that didn't really gel easily with the, the, the contemporary Christian worldview. So, for instance, geology was moving away from what's called catastrophism, Uh, and towards uniformitarianism. Basically, the idea that most of the geological formations that we see today are the result of the same sort of forces that we see every day on the street, but over long periods of time. So instead of there being catastrophic events that produce these geological formations, it's actually little tiny things over a long period of time. And so this implicated that the Earth Seem to be very old. Uh, also, paleontology uh, started to unearth uh, some pretty crazy things, you know. Uh, dinosaurs were showing up, you know, like, what are these? We don't have these anymore. You know, all these strange and wonderful, different, created... Well, I guess I'm inserting my own worldview there, right? But uh, all these interesting new body plans and biological uh, s- systems and uh, new, new sort of creatures we had never seen before are being discovered, their bones are being discovered uh, out of the earth. And so this sort of shakes the idea that the, uh, the, the biological makeup of the earth right now is permanent. Like this is how it's always been. Apparently, this isn't always how it's been. There's, there were things around that aren't around anymore. And then finally, uh, most famously, uh, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace um, were discovering me- mechanisms of adaptation and natural selection which, uh, in biology, which now posited the, the, the possibility that there were a continuum of animal forms just slowly morphing one into the other. And so as you can see... Uh, these these new discoveries are sort of they're poking. They're they're not they're not very comfortable with the the traditional Christian theistic worldview. So, suddenly things are starting to look a little dissonant, and this is actually when we get uh, the uh, the appearance of a new worldview. Uh, and this new worldview is scientific materialism. So, cumulatively, all these different research areas started to uh, allow the creation of a secular worldview, right? So now we have a universe that is, uh, an earth that is very old. We have uh, creatures that have been dying. We have um, this new theory that allows us to explain how one animal can get into another animal in principle. And so this becomes scientific materialism. Now, sci- what scientific materialism is, is basically it marries two different philosophical positions. Uh, the first one is uh, familiar to all of us, which is materialism. What materialism says is that the world, the physical world, is all that there is. Right? There, There is nothing but atoms and other kinds of atoms, and there's just a whole bunch of different atoms and different configurations, and that's what we call the physical world, and that's all there is. Now, this was actually married to another view called scientism, and so what scientism is, uh, is that science alone, now this is the hard version, there actually is a soft version, but... Um, I won't get into that unless somebody wants to ask a question about that, which, by the way, if you have any questions at all about anything, even in the middle of the class, please raise your hand. I wanted this to be clear. Um, But scientism posits that the scientific method alone, especially in the hard sciences, is capable of explaining truth. The only way to get at truth, the only way to get at verifiable information... Knowledge is through the scientific method. Now you can see how these both sort of reinforce each other, right? Science, as I had said before, over the course of this period, had continuously narrowed and narrowed and narrowed into the point where we have uh, this assumption of methodological naturalism, which says we're not going to appeal to outside agents, we're not going to appeal to God for anything, we're going to assume. For the sake of argument, let's say, in the case of Francis Bacon, he, he posited methodological naturalism as a, as a thought exercise, right? I'm going to assume that there's nothing supernatural going on here. There's no design going on here. I'm just going to look at... Well, I guess he wouldn't say there's no design, but um, I'm going to assume that a natural process is going on. So that, coupled with this new view that the material world is all there is, you can see that science is our method of getting verifiable information from the natural world. And if the natural world is the only thing that exists, then science is the only thing that can give us any, in, you know, any real information about it. So this is how we get to the point um, where there is a, an open hostility between sort of institutionalized science, um, and uh, and theistic worldview, right? So we have these these early sort of discoveries, which are uncomfortable with the the, the contemporary theistic worldview, but not un- un- insurmountable. Uh, but this new secular com- comprehensive worldview is very much incompatible with. With Christianity, and this is how um, the the scientific establishment, you might say, you know, uh, becomes hostile to religious belief in general. Uh, And this institutionalization uh, has been one of the major drivers of most of the philosophical and metaphysical trends that we see um, in uh, our our culture. You know, modernism, postmodernism. They're all, uh, as, as a baseline, assuming scientific materialism in many ways. And, um, and they, they rely on the authority and the track record of scientific discoveries to sort of prop up that philosophical worldview. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about in this class, is that a lot of the perceived hostility between um, science and specifically the Christian worldview is actually a philosophical disagreement where we, as Christians, reject scientific materialism, obviously, right? Because there's at least one thing that is not material, and that's God, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so we, uh, we have to reject that, and because this has sort of been, inter- this philosophy has sort of been interwoven with the way that we do science and the assumptions that we make, uh, this Creates a lot of tension um, in, in our, on our world. So, this leads us to the Christian bind. So, if you're thinking about the, the development of the scientific method over time, then we're going to be looking at the fact that Christianity, at a, at a base level, has the assumptions that brought science into the fore, right? We started off talking about how the theology of God as an independent person with a a free will and our status as image bearers is what cumulatively sets up the the system for, for science. But over time, this has become... Uh, more difficult, and so the Christian bind is that we um, we acknowledge wholeheartedly that men can understand the physical world and lem- learn something true about God and nature. We're made in the image of God, and this is what allows us to confidently come uh, to nature and say we can learn something. But secondly. Um, The worldview of scientific materialism, uh, which has been supported um, by the findings of this method, are clearly contrary to Scripture. Scientific materialism doesn't mesh with Scripture. And so Christians are seemingly stuck between what I call uh, truth, lowercase t, truth being what we can know about special, I mean, general revelation. What, what we can learn about the world, nature. You know In the Bible, uh, Paul tells us that uh, God is clearly seen in the works of nature. So this is, this is the, the basis of what we would call general revelation. <laughs> but we also have a capital T truth, right? Which is Scripture, uh, God's actual revelation to us specially. Uh, and this special revelation has its own truth claims, right? And so uh, when scientific materialism, based on lowercase t truth, and Christianity, based on uppercase t truth, come into conflict, Christianity Christians feel like, uh, oh, right? Because we want to affirm that we can learn something from nature, but we also want to affirm the truth of Scripture. And so historically, this actually... Um, developed uh, this bind sort of de- uh, developed sort of a split in uh, at least in American Christianity uh, between uh, what we would call uh, the fundamentalist movement these were Christians that um, above all wanted to protect the, the truth of special revelation and as a result They stayed what we would call theologically orthodox, but they actually became intellectually sort of isolationist. Um, They stayed true to scripture, but they no longer wanted to uh, work with or um, interact with. That's the word I'm looking for. They They no longer wanted to interact with the scientific establishment or many other forms of intellectual pursuit because they thought that it was all sort of corrupted. But on the other side... Uh, we had a, a different uh, group of Christians who tended to side more with general revelation than uh, with special revelation. And these, um, uh, these became what we would call like the liberal mainline denominations that we have uh, today. Um, and they became less and less orthodox over time due to a greater and greater desire to fit sort of this, New materialist intellectual milieu into uh, Christianity to the point where a lot of a lot of uh, times they will they will deny uh, the deity or even existence of Christ, um, they will deny the resurrection, often they will reinterpret the gospel um, and maybe even reject theism itself so I guess what i 'm trying to to, to explain to us as we approach this topic is because a lot of the emotion, right, a lot of the anger uh, in this topic is because we have groups of Christians who guard jealously special revelation, right? Because historically we've had situations in which Christians have uh, slowly disregarded special, the authority of special revelation and fallen away, right? Uh, but then at the other end of the spectrum, we have Christians saying, but we have every reason, biblically, to believe that we, as image bearers, have a responsibility and an ability to know about the natural world. And so, there is this, there's, there's this tension, right? And a lot of it has to do with our, our historical situation as we are right now. Now, evangelicals um, which, you know, broadly we are, right? Um, evangelicals didn't really ever fit neatly in the fundamentalist category or the, the mainline category. So uh, in a certain sense, you know, we're like, hey, man, let's, let's all be together, you know? <laughs> but at the, at the same time, we can't help but be influenced by the, the, the major big streams of Christianity going through our culture, And so if this is the origin of sort of this this view of the scientific versus science versus faith dichotomy, um, this is something that we need to look at. How do we balance general revelation and special revelation? How do different people, different Christians, come to different conclusions about how we do that? And that is going to be the topic of our next class, is the different ways of balancing general and special revelation and the different ways in which this influences how we understand scripture and the natural world. Okay, uh, this is the most boring slide, but also the rest are equally boring. So, <laughs> so let's move on to uh, what we're gonna be talking about more specifically in this wider science versus faith debate, which is uh, intelligent design and theistic evolution. So. Today, I'm not gonna go into a whole bunch of details about what intelligent design, uh, what are the arguments, what are the arguments against. That's gonna be our third class, where we're gonna talk about a different, different sort of balance. Um, but I wanna start off with a definition, right? I want us to all be on the sort of the same page about what it is that we're talking about so we don't get confused. So what is Uh, the intelligent design movement? Well, uh, if we take them at their own word, which I think is the the intellectually honest thing to do, uh, intelligent design is primarily a scientific movement, or ID. I'm going to call them ID, because that's how they go. Um, They have a variety of Minor sort of philosophical, metaphysical arguments associated, but what ID really seeks to argue is that many elements of nature are best explained through the activity of an intelligent agent. Um, they try to argue that that design is scientifically detectable, specifically in the biological realm. And so, um, the challenge uh, to intelligent design often is actually that they are uh, pseudoscientific, right? And pseudoscientific is a way of um, arguing that their methodology is not in line with the scientific method, okay? Let Let me go a little bit into that so we can understand that criticism before we move on to uh, criticism of their arguments on the merits of their arguments this is the the challenge of pseudoscience is sort of a dismissal um, and basically the their critics argue that um, you can 't appeal to an agent when doing science um, that uh, that this now puts you outside of the scientific method. But as we talked about earlier, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case, right? Um, You'll you find that most of the time when, when scientists are dismissing the, the intelligent design movement on this basis, they're actually arguing implicitly for methodological naturalism, right? Now, interestingly, if you actually look at the various um, explanations and Demarcations of what the scientific method is, you won't actually find methodological naturalism. It is not an expressed tenet of the scientific method. Right? So a lot of times, because the ID crowd uh, rejects methodological naturalism, right? Because their argument is that we can actually see the activity of God in nature. Now, of course, they don't make well, I'll explain that what, what, what they aren't, but um, this this sort of tension between methodological naturalism and the ID crowd is really what I think is at the root of this uh, of this challenge of pseudoscience. Now, the problem is because methodological naturalism isn't a core tenet of the scientific method, they actually can't argue for it. So, oftentimes they they will argue. Um, that they, they, uh, the ID community d- doesn't pre- present falsifiable claims or that um, it's an argument from ignorance or it doesn't make predictions. These are all different uh, tenets of the scientific method. But um, I, I, I don't think most of those challenges actually pass muster. I think most of the time they are confronted critics of intelligent design are confronted with the fact that they are expressly rejecting methodological naturalism It's being brought to the fore and then they're like, oh man, I can't actually argue. So the, the problem is with scientific materialism um, is that scientism, one of those pillars that the hard sciences are the only way to get true knowledge is not, is a self-refuting statement Right, so that the sentence "science is the only way to get true knowledge" is not testable by science. You see the problem, and so because that sentence is not testable by science, it cannot be true by its own by its own argument. Right, and so a lot of times when the ID crowd brings up their arguments. Um, methodological naturalism starts to come to the fore and then scientists are like, well, I can't argue for methodological naturalism because that's a philosophical argument and that I, based on scientific materialism, I can't argue for that. <laughs> um, so they, they're put in a bind. I think it's, it's an uncomfortable position um, and I don't, need, I don't mean to uh, dismiss the critics of intelligent design because there are legitimate criticisms of the different claims on scientific grounds, on philosophical grounds. I think what I want to say is I'm not gonna really focus primarily in this class on the, the challenge that it's pseudoscientific. I think it's not really worth our time and I think it's not worth our time because it doesn't really work. So, that is what intelligent design is. What isn't it, okay? It is not uh, a religious movement. So uh, ID proponents don't make arguments from Scripture. Uh, they don't, they're don't. they not expressly Christian. Uh, they're not even all theists, to be honest with you. There are agnostics, part of the ID crowd. There are Muslims. There are... Uh, what's up? Panpsychists. Tell me. I'm sorry, say again?
1: Panpsychists.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's... <laughs> There's just a whole bunch, there's like neoplatonists as part of it, you know. So there's like a whole, there's a, it's a hodgepodge. Uh, so I think to argue that it um, is sort of a creationist group is not necessarily true, although the implications of intelligent design really point to the fact that there is some sort of intelligent agent. So, you know, they would argue that when they're given the, the charge of creationism, that they would say, well, you know, it doesn't have to be God. It could be, you know, like a super advanced alien, right, that's doing it. Um, but really, when we're, I mean, when we're talking about the kinds of things that the ID um, movement is saying is, has been done in the history of biology, it looks a lot like God. So uh, I understand the, the, the sentiment, but we want to understand what the movement is on its own grounds. Right, They would never argue from scripture, and they would never uh, argue from theology either. Um, now, individual ID proponents will say, uh, yes, but I also am a Christian. And so to Christians, they will talk about theology and, and stuff, but not as a, as a major part of their, of their scientific work. So they, they do take great pains to separate sort of theological arguments from their scientific case. Um, they don't make interpretations of Genesis. Uh, although, you, if you were to take a poll, you would find that most, uh, well, most Christians who are in the ID movement would be called like old, old earth creationists is, is the, general, the general field. Um, and they're not dedicated to any specific designer. You know, It could be anything that has the power and capacity to design, which in our situation, let's just call, it, let's call this guy God. Um, so that's intelligent design. Um, I again, I'm, I'm happy to take any questions after the after the lesson or during the lesson. Um, but my goal here in this class is to try to present what the arguments is that the that each side is actually presenting for themselves and not um, caricature them. Uh, so that is what we're doing today, is trying not to caricature uh, each side. So, what is theistic evolution? So, theistic evolution, as you might imagine, has something to do with evolution, uh, and something to do with God, as well. So, what theistic evolution is, it is a movement, uh, or, actually, I shouldn't say movement, Uh, it is a theological slash philosophical position. Um, So, they don't really make specific scientific claims. What they do is they argue um, that the uh, Darwinian macroevolution uh, is compatible with theistic, evo- uh, with theistic belief. That's, that's the through line in all of the different sort of groups within what could be called theistic evolution, because the problem is, unlike ID, which is a specific thing, you know, it's ID trademark. There are groups saying, like, we are part of the intelligent design movement, they have institutions, etc. Uh, theistic evolution isn't like that, it's not a group, you know, it's not like uh, there isn't the theistic evolution center, right? It's a position, it's a, it's a philosophical position. And what that means is that there's like a huge, it's a super broad category of different views that could be identified as theistic evolutionary, right? So, um, and depending on where you are on that spectrum within theistic evolution, you're going to get very different uh, interpretations, different ways that this is going to play out in in your arguments. Um, So... Just to give you a, a, a small taste of the different forms of theistic evolutionary thought, you have people who argue that um, for something that could be called evolutionary design, right? Um, you could have a, a group that argues for evolutionary creation, which is, that, that, that is associated with the Biologos Consortium. Um, evolutionary creation tends to disagree with the uh, the evolutionary design arguments. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. You also have theistic evolutionists who hold sort of a deistic worldview about the fact that sort of uh, sort of God set the clock and walked away and that's all there is to it, right? So, I mean, these are primarily descriptors that I'm presenting. Um, one of the difficulties with, with with a philosophical position is that a lot of times they don't really define their terms correctly or differentiate themselves from other, other groups. So I'm trying to, to bring clarity. Yeah? Uh, would you
2: take a minute to define Darwinian macroevolution?
0: Group? Yeah, sorry. Um, so this is sort of uh, a, a term primarily used by Christians. Um, and it's to differentiate the different kinds of evolution, evolutionary theory. So um, Darwinian Indicates that the mechanism by which the evolution occurs, the transition of, of species into other species, uh, into different animal forms, the, the method by which or the mechanism by which that happens is natural selection, um, and adaptation. Uh, well, neo Darwinism would say it's it's there's also the component of genetic mutations is part of that genetic mutations on top of uh, natural selection. Basically. Random changes in the genome are then are then sort of weeded out by nature itself, right? So if you have a random genetic variation that makes you better, uh, slightly better at digesting a nut, and there, you're in this this environment that has like a whole bunch of these different nuts, then you're going to be better fed than the other members of the population, and then that means you will outcompete them in terms of Uh, breeding, et cetera, and over time that genetic marker essentially becomes dominant. And then this happens over and over and over again. And over time, these small changes make big changes. and So that's what the macro in the macro evolution is is talking about. Macro evolution is uh, talking about the common ancestry of all biological forms, you know, starting from single-celled all the way through, there's a branch of ancestry going through that. We're all connected through this this Darwinian mechanism. Now, scientists don't use the word macroevolution. Um, Scientists would just say evolution, right? Uh, We, in the Christian community, often use the term macroevolution to uh, differentiate the big sort of worldview picture of Darwinism from microevolution which is, again, another Christian, mostly a Christian term, which is talking about how that mechanism works in, in small-scale and discrete places that we can actually see. So basically, nobody argues that microevolution doesn't happen. And what microevolution is is what I just described, that you have a mutation, you know, uh, it makes the, the bird better at eating a nut, and the bird uh, proliferates, and that, that genetic Marker is expanded. That is microevolution. Something we can test in nature, and that's what really the, the the pioneering thought of Charles Darwin was this idea that adaptation and natural selection uh, can make these changes. They can explain these morpho- morphological changes. Um, and what Christians often argue is that microevolution is true but you can't extrapolate the microevolution into the past to make the big worldview picture that we call macroevolution. But scientists would, would just call everything evolution, right? So, uh, so the reason I use that term here is because if I were to say uh, theistic evolutionists argue that evolution is compatible with theistic belief, it's too broad because most creationists, almost all stripe. Would argue that some evolution is compatible with, with uh, theistic belief. Um, in fact, I would say almost everybody says that some form of evolution. The argument is, what kind of evolution? What shape does it take? And the, what's interesting about theistic evolution? What sets it apart is they argue that the the this specific Darwinian macroevolutionary model um, is is compatible with theistic belief. And that and they and that argument has its own discrete tensions with Christianity. Specifically, you know, uh, this descent of man is, is a, w- one of the big sticking points there. You know, um, another, another problem that many people have is uh, with animal death before the fall. What does that look like? How old is the earth? Darwinian macroevolution assumes a very old earth. Uh, has to, otherwise it doesn't work. And so if you uh, are a young earth creationist, then you're going to be like, oh, that doesn't work, right? So uh, this, this is sort of a term of art that I'm using, and I'm glad that you asked me to explain it because I, I'm, in, I'm in this stuff so much that I, I, I just... What's, what's jargon and what isn't? It just kind of flies over my head. So, um, so basically what differentiates the different sort of uh, views within... Uh, theistic evolution is to what extent we can say that evolution is directed so if you are somebody who argues for an evolutionary design argument then you would be more comfortable saying that God set up this evolutionary paradigm to create a specific end he had this end the world right now well, the world pre-fall let's say but the world that resulted pre-fall, that was God's intention. And through providence, God created that. We can say God created that, even though uh, mechanistically, there's this natural system producing it. Now, an evolutionary creationist, sort of on the biologos form, would be a little less comfortable with that. They wouldn't be so comfortable with saying that God specifically meant for this particular creation at the end, just that God used evolution to create something like this. And then if you go all the way other, to the other end of the spectrum on the deistic side, now, sorry, I should be clear, biolocus is also its own big spectrum of different beliefs. I'm just trying to paint with a broad brush. Um, if you're on the way other end of the deistic view, you know, God didn't really even care what, what came out, right? He's just like, hey, I'm creating, and look, oh man, this mechanism. Look at that, it's creating stuff. Um, so, um, and then maybe that's a, that's a, uh, a caricature, but I, I, there are not many Christians who would argue for sort of that sort of deistic worldview. In some sense, God is directing the, the, the evolutionary framework. So let's talk about what theistic evolution is not. It's not a scientific movement. They very rarely make scientific arguments. Uh, they don't make predictions. They don't argue for, um, you know, they don't produce their own, well, I mean, if they're scientists, they may produce their own research, but not as an effort of theistic evolution. And this makes sense to us, right? Because the tenet is, is that the the sort of the scientific consensus on evolutionary theory is true. So they're not gonna make scientific arguments for theistic evolution. They're saying, their argument is, we don't have to worry about it, right? We don't have to worry about the scientific evidence. uh, and so theistic evolutionists will often disagree with sort of sci- mainstream scientists on their philosophical presuppositions, right, and their big worldview picture, uh, but they don't argue against usually the science that's produced by this uh, by this uh, institution. Um, and this often ends up, you know, the problem, you know, I feel bad for th- uh, the theistic evolution community because... Um, they get a lot of flack from uh, sort of Christians, creationist Christians, right? But then also they don't get a lot of respect from the scientific community either. You know, the scientific community says you guys are just adding, you know, uh, this this you know sky the sky guy to our our movement, and we don't. I mean, this in our theory we don't need it. Um, so I feel bad for them. They get they get hit all over the place. So. Um, they don't... Uh, they rarely actually even argue from a scientific position. Now, oftentimes they'll, they'll argue maybe with um, a critic of evolution, right? They'll argue for sort of the mainstream uh, consensus scientific position on it. But that's really not the thrust of their argument. The thrust of their argument is that we can live in harmony... Theistic, I mean, evolution is can be in harmony with the Christian worldview or theism in general. I should say. Um, so the scientific arguments are usually tertiary. So when we're talking about intelligent design versus theistic evolution, because there has been quite a bit of argumentation between these two different groups, um, you can see why a lot of times they don't really get anywhere, and the problem is. Um, and this is something that people in both camps would acknowledge. The problem is they are different movements trying to do different things, and they have different philosophical positions that that's usually not where the argumentation is, is happening, right? So if you're an, an intelligent design proponent, you're going to be arguing scientifically that you know, XYZ scientific argument is invalid. The theistic evolutionist doesn't want to deal with that. They're like, I don't want to even deal with that. I want to deal with why you think that's a problem, right? And so usually these these discussions go round and round in circles. And so what I want to do in this class, for the third class, is discuss what is one of those major philosophical disagreements that each side has that determines their openness to these different views, right? Why would somebody be more convinced by an intelligent design argument from science than they would be from a theistic evolution perspective what what theological argument are they making so that is what i want to talk about in this class there are a lot of things i could talk about there are a lot of things that uh, i would like to talk about but i felt like if my goal in the, in the course is to provide tools for this church specifically, to have cordial and beneficial discussions with each other on these issues without it becoming uh, superheated. You know, things get heated sometimes, but superheated is I want to give, hopefully, some tools to understand the, the other person's position so you can argue at that plane or on other planes, but with that in mind so we don't get um, uh, uh, too confused and, and angry. So what are the two tensions? These are going to be the, uh, the topics of our, my next two classes. The first tension is general versus special revelation. I already talked about this. How do we balance these two? Basically, this class is going to be, why are we even talking about this? Why even talk about intelligent design and theistic evolution? Right? The Bible tells us everything we need to know, right? Or does it? Or should we think it does? That is what this class is going to be about. Um, My next class, the class after that, the final one, uh, is going to be talking about how we balance, how we understand God's activity in the world. Is God primarily acting in the world in creation through his primary agent? I I use primary way too many times in that sentence. (laughs) Does God usually, is God working in creation through primary causation? Meaning, is he doing something like we, as we would think of an engineer? Is he creating the parts and he's, is he putting them together as, as the analogy would go? Is, that, is he working primarily that way, like an artist? Or is he creating in secondary ca- causation, sort of in a sovereign, providential way? Is he creating a system that can create other, other ends? And by providence, by secondary causation, we can say God created Right, that is the central tension, I think, between intelligent design and theistic evolution. Is what should we expect God's activity in the world to look like, and based on that, what what uh, what is a compelling argument from either from either side of that? Uh, so, with that, I will um, end the class and uh, take any questions. I my my goal is hopefully, to expand uh, our, our minds so that we can, we can better discuss things. Because this is a really fun discussion. And it should be fun. It should be less angry.
1: Yeah, that's the first time I've heard anyone... That's the first time I've heard anyone describe this as fun within the church. <laughs> so... Uh, yes. the, the clarity is helpful and the, and the history in the background is helpful so, yeah.
0: yeah I mean I should say that I'm not a historian um, even though I like to think of myself as one I, I there are many ways to discuss the fundamentalist modernist discussion um, I was trying to focus primarily on the, the, the changes in the scientific community but we can talk about philosophical disagreements metaphysical stuff theological stuff that I would very much not be qualified to talk about at all. I'm barely qualified to talk about this, so. Um, but yes, I, I was hoping that it would sort of provide a place for that. Tyler, could you describe the the hermeneutical tension that exists within this these two camps? Like, where we're in hermeneutics and in, a, in, in interpreting Genesis, where does the rubber hit the road, and how they understand what Genesis is teaching? Yes, so that is mostly what next class is going to be about, but because I like you so much, I'm going to answer uh, generally. So uh, the rubber hits the road when it comes to what you believe the purpose of Genesis is. What is Genesis trying to convey, right? Um, And what I'll talk about next week um, is... The basic argument that the literal uh, interpretation of a biblical passage is not necessarily in, necessarily, by definition the correct, defi- the, the correct interpretation, right? Often it is, but sometimes it's not. And how can we understand that in relationship to Genesis, right? Um, and Christian come, Christians come down on so many different sides on this and that's what I hope to overview next week is how we come down on different sides of this. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what is Genesis trying to convey? And there are positions that I would say that is not allowed, right? Um, and I'll talk about that next week. But there is, I, I feel like there's a lot of room there for discussion. Um, the difficulty is how do you look at it with clear eyes and absent the tension that we're talking about, right? Because if you think about it, the, the, uh, what the correct interpretation of Genesis is has nothing to do with our disagreements with scientific materialism and uh, our attempts. To understand what the facts on the ground are, right? Genesis has its has its own message to tell us, um, and sometimes it's hard to separate those two. Um, and but that's, um, you know, that's the way I think it should be done. So we'll talk about that next week. But yeah, any other questions? Clarifying questions. Uh, you can ask another question if you want, Beth. Uh, oh, uh, real quick. So Francis Collins, the Human Genome Project. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where does he fall in the, in the... Is he intelligent design or is he a theistic evolutionist? or is he both? So he is uh, definitely a theistic evolutionist. He is the founder of the BioLogos group. Uh, so he, he wrote a book, uh, I believe called The Language of God, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, in that he makes the argument uh, for theistic evolution and that is what or what he would call evolutionary creation Um, because it has its own like I was trying to explain in the broad scheme of things it has its own arguments Um, so yeah he's definitely theistic evolutionist yeah
1: Can you
2: tell us a little bit about what you do and what your work is and also about the interplay of your faith with that?
0: Oh, sure, yeah. So I am a scientist. Um, What I do is, uh, I guess, technically science. Um, Most of the time, I make bunches of mistakes. Um, So I I work in a field called tissue engineering. Um, In this field, what we do is we take um, biological cells, and we're trying to apply them to three-dimensional synthetic scaffolds to create a therapeutic. So, in my in my so I touch the microphone. Rule number one: Don't touch the microphone. Um, so, in my in my lab, that means we we create um, uh, biodegradable tubes. We see, we seed smooth muscle cells on them to create an artificial vessel. For people, for instance, who have had coronary artery disease uh, or other vascular diseases. So um, that's what I work on. I actually more specifically work on sort of the large animal testing of that. How can we test these in large animals before we test them in humans to make sure that they're safe? Um, but yeah, generally that's what I work on. Although I my my background is in biochemistry. So I, uh, at the, at the graduate level, it is a little fuzzy what I do. I'm technically in pathology because I work on diseases, but I don't really do pathology. It's very confusing. I've got a degree in pathology. I don't know what that will do for me. but um, Yeah, so I, I'm a biochemist who works on, on cells, basically, is what I would say. Um, and how does that work with my faith? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I, uh, I was homeschooled uh, growing up. Me and my eight other siblings were all homeschooled. Um, and my mom uh, was the daughter of a medical doctor. Uh, I mean, from, and from the time that she was young, she loved science all the way through. She was an artist, but she wanted to actually, her, what she was in college for, uh, was to do the medical illustrations. So, you know, if you go into an anatomy textbook and you see like the picture of the heart, that's what she wanted to do, and she was doing that. Um, before she got married and have like a, a billion kids so uh, so she really loves science she really loved learning uh, loved she 's still alive she 's coming tomorrow to my house so don 't <laughs> worry about that, but um, she loves science, uh, and so from an early age, uh, we just we just were sort of saturated in this uh, in this culture of loving science uh, you know I, ironically um, I, I would say if I had to look back and place myself sort of in a tradition, I would say I grew up in a fundamentalist uh, household. Um, but we didn't really ever see a problem with that and, and the love of science. So anyways, that's, that's where I, I've come from. Um, my oldest brother is a biochemist. My next oldest brother has a degree in chemical engineering. My next oldest brother is a nurse. I'm next. Um, I'm whatever I am. And then... My younger brother is a biochemist, so there's a lot of scientists in my family. Um, um, which is great. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a testament to my mom and her and her love of it. Uh, my, you know neither of my parents had any college degrees, so but education and, and science were very important to them. so um, And then theologically, we were doing a bunch of apologetics, so that sort of helped. It, it, in any of the any places where I would normally, you would you know, if you hear the the backstory of the person who's into science, but they're like, oh man, Christianity. Well, it, but apologetics really helps with a lot of the dissonance that you you would normally feel. Just to know that there are people out there who acknowledge, um, you know, who are willing to acknowledge the scientific information and don't see a problem with that, with Christianity. It's really uh, a confidence-building thing, and I would suggest that everybody do that with their kids. Get them into apologetics. It'll help them. Um, Yeah, thanks for that. Any other questions? Yeah, Amos, lay it on me. He's the real scientist in the room.
2: I don't He actually does real (laughs) stuff. Not a scientist anymore. No? Uh, My question is... um, evolution is kind of tricky to discuss because you know getting into like kind of the facts is hard mm. yeah um, but physics I've found to be a little bit simpler in some ways yeah and it makes some you know the f- physicists make some pretty concrete claims like specifically age of the universe yeah so, like, on one hand, biology is messy. I don't think mm. any biologist would disagree with that. Yeah. Physics is a little bit cleaner yeah. in that sense. hmm But it seems like the discussions tend to focus on biology and evolution. And, I, yeah. But, it, but yeah. It, like, it, it seems like the first, que- like, in order to assess micro versus macro, the first thing you have to do is decide how old you think. hmm evol- yeah. Because, obviously, small changes can add up to big changes, right? That's yeah, kind of, of course. The, very definition of, you know, that's a, that's a mathematical mm-hmm. yeah. statement. Right. So the first thing you have to do is decide how many years has, evolution, has microevolution, which everybody agrees with, how many years has microevolution had a chance to operate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before you start even deciding what could or could not have happened, or, you know, where you know, where, where, the, where, where you draw the line between micro, which everybody agrees with, and macro, which if you're using the phrase, you're maybe saying that you don't agree with. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're using, you're using that phrase to outline the category of things that. Exactly, yeah. So there's kind of like a. How do I say it? What, what's my question? <laughs> where, where, why, why is it that people, or do people tend to talk more about evolution more so than physics?
1: Or I th- yeah.
0: yeah, I think it depends on your your area. Um, I find that philosophers, professional philosophers like William Lane Craig, Alvin Plantinga, uh, these guys really didn't really like to talk about biology at all. You know, <laughs> they wanted to talk about physics because, like you said, it's very clear. Um, you know, uh, William Lane Craig is famous for his uh, his reworking of the the Kalam cosmological argument. Alvin Plantinga has his own own, uh, set of uh, philosophical arguments, like the contingency argument. But the uh, philosophers, I've found, uh, are are more comfortable talking about the the evidence for God in physics. Um, And actually, I I should say that intelligent design people and theistic evolutionists both agree uh, on arguments such as the fine-tuning argument, uh, of physics they are they agree on mostly on the the cosmological arguments for God they would agree on the, the contingency arguments so um, I think sometimes the reason that biology is in the forefront for a lot of these discussions is that there's less agreement um, there is more agreement on the physics side of things but I, I understand what your argument is which is um, I would say that, when it comes to the age of the earth there are um, a variety of different streams of evidence um, that seem to indicate an, an age an old earth right? now young earth creationists would um, either dispute each of these different lines of ev- evidence on their own terms or they would argue in general of, um, they would make an, a philosophical argument about the, what, the, what the capabilities of science are to discuss the Earth. But you're right. The thing is, if you're a young Earth creationist, evolution is impossible, right? Because the age of the Earth, uh, the age of the universe, precludes that possibility. So, um, you're right. One of the reasons I wanted to do the next class, which is on sort of this, the balance between general and special revelation, is because in this class, uh, in a lot of ways, it's sort of excluding uh, a lot of young earth creationists um, because they, they would just say, why? Why are we even talking about it? Right? Because it's impossible. And so what I want to do in this next class is I want to bring them into the discussion and, um, and explain where they come from, where other positions are coming from. Um, and if you think about it, if intelligent design is the argument that we can see the detectable evidence of design in nature, you would, ex- you would expect a young earth creationist to be like, obviously, right? Because nature, uh, animals, human beings, all of nature was specially created in a, in a miracle, right? And so they would, uh, they are all, from what I understand, almost all young earth creationists are ID proponents. Um, but they at the same time would say, well, a lot of those ID guys, they're older creationists. You know, they don't, they don't really know. Um, what's going on but their arguments about science are good right and so um, yeah it's, it's, the problem is because of all these overlapping uh, arguments because really the age of the earth is sort of a backdrop in which the the scientific discussion of biology is happening right um, and so to, for me to do a class on intelligent design versus theistic evolution um, I, had a, I have to sort of I want to acknowledge the backdrop, but I have to sort of move in to the specific arguments uh, of biology. So, yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough picture, you know. Um, And I think the there are if one of the reasons why I felt inadequate doing this class is because I could do a whole class uh, just on young earth creationism and their various arguments. For the the age of the universe, age of the earth, their biblical arguments, I, I want to touch a little bit on that next week, um, but i 'm not going to do them justice, and I feel you know I want to make sure that they know that I know that there are people who do them justice you know? <laughs> right
1: whether or not we agree with them right, right. You, you mentioned the uh, your gratitude for apologetics, but um, I wanted to kind of talk about that a little cuz i remember a lot of my youth group apologetics classes being more of a sword to use against mm. arguments so it would be my my thought is that i, I they ultimately failed me mm. is kind of what i was going to get at and my my thought is going through this is seeing that it seems like it was one of a couple things that broke down was that it was either Philosophical arguments being put forward as scientific arguments, or like mm. to defeat scientific arguments mm. on the opposing side, yeah. Or like cherry picking examples. Mm. So like for example, oh well, giraffes have this special um, these special mechanisms in their necks so that their brains don't explode when they bend over. It's like <laughs> yeah. how would that evolve? And right. and you maybe that's worth something, but then right. you put that forward there's always someone who's going to be able to come back at you with three more arguments that you don't have an answer for. Mm, mm, so I, mm. my question is, how can you spot good apologetics versus bad apologetics? Uh,
0: that is a great question. I think the, the usefulness of apologetics is primarily in its philosophical training. Um, Many many apologists will spend the majority of their time teaching you basic philosophy to understand um, where, for instance, fallacies are coming from, um, where, uh, uh, yeah, so basically, I would, so for instance, when I was talking about earlier how scientific materialism or scientism is a self-refuting argument, that is where, where apologetics is useful. Right where you can see uh, common objections, common arguments that are really weak. Right uh, now, when it comes to specific arguments, I'm not necessarily sure I would call a, a scientific argument about the, the the nature of a giraffe's neck as apologetics necessarily. Right because what apologetics is is the defense of the faith. Um, and if you if you marry the idea that you need to be able to explain why evolution is impossible for your faith to be real is really shaky ground, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and that, led to a lot of, that led to a lot of deconstruction among my friends and even a period of questioning for myself. It's like we make all these absolute claims about our faith and worldview um, that are all... Um, dominoes that hinge on each other and mm. so you take one out and everything falls to pieces.
0: Yeah, I think the the benefit, what I would say if, if, if I was counseling somebody in this position, which really you don't want me as a counselor. Don't ask me to be your counselor. But <laughs> if I was in this position, I would say uh, listen to a diverse view of mm-hmm. apologetics mm-hmm. because you're going to find orthodox Christians in apologetics, who disagree with the giraffe argument. Right. Right? So I would say it's not so much a problem with apologetics as a field as it is a problem with creating a bubble for yourself, whether that be um, a young earth bubble or an old earth bubble or any other bubble, because I think you'll find that once you puncture that and you go into anybody else's bubble, you're going to find that people are a lot more reasonable than you thought they were, right? And you can't caricature their arguments anymore. And especially within the Christian community, where, again, we want to have helpful discussions without rancor, we want to be able to understand where our fellow Christians are coming from in their worldview, and so having a diverse view. So, for instance, you know, I I was exposed to young earth apologetics, old earth, the, theistic evol- less theistic evolutionists, but a little bit of that. I mean, so I had a variety of views where I could you sort of get a big picture over time seeing, okay, here's a strength, here's a weakness, and uh, how can I best uh, balance all of these different views? Like, where, where would I really feel confident arguing? So for instance, you know, I, I would feel very confident arguing for the cosmological argument, right? Uh, you know, the, co- the Kalam cosmological argument, I think is very strong. I know that there are critiques of it, but I find the critiques to be pretty weak. Um, and they, they seem very um, ad hoc, is what I'm saying. So there are really strong arguments that you can make. And then there are arguments that you hold tentatively, right? Mm-hmm. And then you say, you know, so I guess when it comes down to it, build your foundation with the strong stuff. Yeah. Don't build your foundation with the weak stuff. Yeah. And then the, what the process of growing and, and learning wisdom is being able to differentiate the strong and weak, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Amos. Last question. me.
2: I want to jump off of that to um, mention something that I was thinking during an earlier slide, which was Galileo. Mm. And yeah. the church took a very strong stance against the sun being the center of the solar system. Mm. Mm. And it seemed to me like, I'm, I'm no historian, I, I don't know any of this stuff. Yeah. But it certainly seemed to me like the scientific field reacted pretty strongly. To that position such that once the church was established, was demonstrated to be wrong about it, then at that point it kind of opened the floodgate to well, look, the church can make really strong arguments and off of nothing yeah, I think um, that's kind of like your, your apologetics thing, like be yeah. careful what arguments you make and say and, and stand on them strongly because if you're overstating yourself, then yeah. if you're overstating yourself, then that's a big problem if you're wrong. Exactly.
0: I think it comes down to our Christian witness, right? Um, but I would say, you know, you know it's the, we all have blind spots, you know? And what you think is a strong argument or a weak argument is going to be different from another person who's looking at it a different way. And I think what the benefit of cordial discussion and you know brotherly pushback on your arguments um and just general intellectual training um is so that we can sharpen each other sharpen iron sharpens iron and knowing that you know you know every time i hear a good criticism of one of the arguments i like you know a little part of me is like oh no <laughs> but um but, it, you know, growing up, you've got to learn how to deal with those little oh-no's and then remind yourself, oh, what, what, what's really the foundation of what I believe? And can I let this go? And, then, you know, is this criticism even really very good? Et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the... The last thing I'll say is one of the problems with the, the Galileo incident is, um, you know, you have an, uh, the Catholic Church as an ecclesiology uh, believes in the authority of tradition. And that creates a lot of issues when you have a church that's 2,000 years old, right? So um, revisions of ideas uh, are very difficult in that situation. And it's, it's different in the Protestant world, right? Where we're, we have sola scriptura, so we're, we're pretty open about non-scriptural things in general, right? All right. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks for coming. Next week, hermeneutics. Everybody's favorite topic.